0: Hey, good morning. Happy Easter. Hey, if you got a Bible, you can open it up to Matthew chapter 28. We can start there. Uh, If this is your first time to redemption, thank you so much for joining us on Easter. We're really, really glad that you're here, and uh, again, thank you. Thank you for being here. Uh, Today, we're going to look at uh, Matthew 28, 1 through 10, and uh, it's kind of our key passage. It's a resurrection story uh, according to uh, Matthew, and what I want to do is I want to look at just three words this morning, Uh, three words that I think are the irrefutable proof that Jesus is exactly who he said he is. Uh, that he knew what was coming uh, years, obviously for eternity, but he knew what was coming even uh, on earth uh, before the cross. He knew what was, he was going to face. And then uh, lastly, that we can trust what he said. Now, when I say three words, most of you in your head, you're already like, yes, Stephen, we know what these three words are. He is risen, right? And we've heard that. But I actually want to look at three different words This morning, Uh, there are three words that come right after those three powerful words. And of course, I would never on Easter or at any time negate the power of those three words. He is risen. But I want to look actually at the words that come right after that. In the Matthew account in chapter 28, uh, let me read through it. It says, now after the Sabbath, toward the dawn of the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary went to see the tomb. As he said. As he said. And this morning what I want to do is I want to look into the idea that not only did Christ rise, which he certainly did, but he rose as he said. Or as another translation says with a little more uh, emphasis, just as he said. And I think the idea that Christ rose and he rose as he said reminds us of those three points uh, that I already hit. One, that we can trust that he is absolutely who he says he is. That he knew what he was going to face and yet he faced it anyway. And that if we can trust that Jesus can predict his death and his own resurrection, then we can trust everything else that he said. So this morning, we're going to look at that as he said. Now, there's, of course, people in your life, and when you think about them, uh, you think when they say something, you know it's going to happen. You, you trust them, and, uh, and if they said it, like, you, you just take it to the bank. There's, of course, other people in your life, when they say, hey, I'll be here at that time, you know that that time means that time plus anywhere from, like, five minutes to an hour, Right? Some of you, that explains, why well, you were a little late this morning, right? What about Jesus? Is he the first or the last type? Is he the type who says something, and when he says something, you know that it's going to be that? Or is he the type that says something, and there's a little bit of variety or variable built into it? Can you trust what he said? In fact, this morning... This morning, when we think about what's going to happen uh, across our country, across the world, and what has already begun hours before right uh, around the world, it really comes down to this. Can you trust what Jesus said? Can you trust what Jesus said? And so we'll see here at the end, by the way, that there are two stories. There are two stories that have been told from the day that Christ rose, there are two different stories that people have been telling about that day. And you have to decide which of those two stories are you going to believe. There's only two. We'll look at that at our time. So when you see here that Jesus uh, rose, as he said, if you're anything like me, you go, well, when did he say it? When did he say it? And so uh, in the Luke accounts of uh, the the scriptures or of the gospels, in Luke chapter 18, uh, we see Jesus actually predicting uh, what was going to happen. And so uh, what we're going to do is we're going to look at the Luke account, and then we're going to go back and we're going to see, can we trust Jesus uh, for his prediction? Now, the heading in Luke chapter 18, I'll start in verse 31, uh, it starts off by saying that this was actually the third time that Jesus predicted his death. The the third time. And so we'll we'll skip over the first two, and we'll just get to the third one. And uh, here's what it says. It says, and taking the 12. So Jesus, if you're unfamiliar with the biblical story, Jesus had 12 disciples. And uh, for a couple of years now, those guys had been traveling around uh, the Jerusalem area. And uh, as they had been doing that, Jesus had been performing miracles, and he had been teaching them new things. And uh, his movement was beginning to grow. And so he takes the 12, right? And these are the 12 that are still trying to figure out completely who is Jesus? Is he just a teacher? What exactly is he here to fulfill? Uh, What is all of this going to look like? We can see in this story and the resurrection story that they still didn't completely get it. But on one particular moment, Jesus grabs the 12 together and he's going to tell them something. And now remember, he's told them a lot of things before and they've seen many of it come uh, to be, but there's something about what he's about to say that they still can't fully grasp. And I'll try to explain. And why. So after taking the 12, he, Jesus, of course, said to them, See, we are going up to Jerusalem. Now this is the first little prediction that Jesus is going to make, and this one is the most obvious of all of the predictions. When he says we're going to go up to Jerusalem, because uh, all of the Jews, or at least all of the Jews that were capable of doing that, would travel to Jerusalem around Passover. Normally there are about fifty thousand people or so that lived in Jerusalem, but on Passover week uh, there would be around two hundred and fifty thousand. And so imagine that, uh, right? right? Five x on the amount of people flooding into uh, Jerusalem where the temple was, and Jesus says, we're going to go up to Jerusalem. Now, this was the easiest of the predictions because they're all able-bodied, and so naturally they would have gone. And we know the story uh, of what happened when they did go to Jerusalem. Uh, Jesus rides on the colt of a donkey, and he rolls into town, and there's a segment of the population there that begins to worship Jesus. We refer to it as Palm Sunday. They yell out, Hosanna, and the palm branches and, and all of those types of things. And so there, Jesus is one for one. And Palm Sunday is unique because it was one of the first times that uh, Jesus allowed people to worship him and he didn't stop them in that moment. Maybe you've wondered in the past, how is it uh, that the, the, the people worship Jesus as king on Sunday and then yelled to crucify him on Friday? Uh, one scholar that I read around this says it's probably a completely different group of people. There are 250,000 people in town, and, uh, and so it's, it's likely uh, that, that there was a group of people who hailed Jesus as king, but a completely different group of people who were used uh, to, to crucify him uh, and changed by uh, the religious leaders uh, and used by the religious leaders in order to do that. So, but here we are. Jesus is one for one. He does roll into Jerusalem just as he said. Now, the story goes on. Jesus makes that first prediction. Again, not very shocking uh, to the disciples. They would have said, Yeah, we we always go to Jerusalem at Passover. so, So nothing crazy there. He goes on, though. He says, See, we are going up to Jerusalem, and everything that is written about the Son of Man by the prophets will be accomplished. Now, there is much, and time, of course, would not allow me to go through everything that was written about Jesus by the prophets, by the prophet Zechariah, by the prophet Malachi, by the prophet Isaiah, by the prophet Jeremiah. I mean, over and over in the Old Testament, hundreds of years prior to this moment, historically we're in like 33-ish AD, but prior to this moment, tons has been written about Jesus. And there's that phrase there, the Son of Man, and sometimes that's a little confusing for us because when we see the phrase, the Son of Man, we think that Jesus is a Appealing to his his humanity, but he's not actually appealing to his humanity in that moment. He's actually appealing to his divinity, something that the that the prophet Daniel had written hundreds of years prior. And Jesus is now calling himself that Son of Man, which was actually a claim to calling himself. God. And so there, uh, Jesus lays that out. He says, I'm going to roll into town, I'm going to roll into Jerusalem, and there I'm going to fulfill everything that was written by the prophets. And uh, for the sake of time, I won't go through all of those, but he absolutely does it. And so now Jesus is two for two. And the story goes on. And this is when it would have gotten a little bit more confusing for the disciples. Jesus says, uh, I'm going to go in. I'm going to fulfill everything. It will all be accomplished. Again, they probably didn't exactly know what Jesus meant. But then he says these words. He says, for he will be delivered over to the Gentiles. Now, the Gentiles is clearly Jesus talking about Rome. Rome, right? This is the height of the Roman Empire, and, and, and they have control over much of the world. And Jesus says he's going to be delivered over to the Gentiles. And for the disciples to hear this in, the, in this moment, they would have thought, well, why would that happen? The only people who get delivered over to the Gentiles are uh, those who cause insurrections or who commit capital offenses. And Jesus no offense, but uh, you don't really strike me as the guy who would commit a capital offense. You've uh, been very peaceful. You're very loving. uh, So it would not make sense to them in that moment for Jesus to ever be handed over to the Gentiles. And The only thing the disciples could have thought, and maybe you've thought this too, how come they didn't understand that Jesus wasn't talking about a political or a military revolution? Uh, One of the things that might have been confusing for the disciples is in this moment, Jesus said, I'm going to be handed over to the Gentiles, and it would have actually been a natural conclusion for the disciples to think, maybe Jesus is actually starting a political or a military revolution if he's going to be handed over to the Gentiles, because that's the only type of person that the Gentiles would come after. And so there is Jesus making this prediction that he's going to be handed over to the Gentiles and the disciples would have listened in and thought, okay, I don't completely understand this, but we flip over to Matthew chapter 27 and we see this happen exactly. Now, we're kind of jumping around in the story a little bit, so I'll have to get a a little bit of context to it. But in Matthew chapter 27, it starts like this. It says, when morning came. Now, morning here is referring to Friday morning. And what has happened the night before, obviously Thursday night, uh, the institution of the Lord's Supper has taken place. Jesus has sat around. He's had his last supper with the disciples. And uh, then he's gone off to the garden where he prayed. Uh, He prayed for us. He prayed for unity. Uh, He prayed for future believers where Jesus uh, is praying, right? And, uh, And then there's the betrayal. And the betrayal, of course, that occurred uh, by the kiss of a friend. And it, it seems to be like in this moment, right, uh, in the storyline where the story begins to change, right, where uh, the betrayal happens and, uh, and Jesus there, even in that moment, uh, is trying to show some grace to Judas who has just betrayed him. Uh, he's come, he's arrested, and then he's transported over to the religious leaders, and we can't look into all of that part of the story right now, but what's going on there is there is this um, this sham of a trial. Uh, I mean, you could not look into it and, and see that this trial with false witnesses and uh, and false accusations. It goes all night, which was illegal in its sen- in itself. Uh, and you see the the chief priests there; uh, they're trying to push an agenda through the trial. I know it is impossible right now for us to think about politically motivated trials. Okay, but. So, anyway, the the district attorney, I mean, the chief priest, okay, he grabs him, and he says, and and he starts pushing a conclusion on Jesus. He's pushing, and he's pushing, and he's pushing, and they can't find anything. And so, they make stuff up to make it stick. And so, when morning came, it was after all of that, and and they had already played, they played their hand, and that was this. We're going to make this guy guilty, regardless if he did it or not. That was our idea with Christ. And so when morning came, all of that had already happened and taken place. When morning came, all the chief priests and these guys were the power players of the Jewish faith. They had everything to lose and nothing to gain by Jesus' claim of messiahship and savior. This is all the chief priests. And the elders of the people took counsel against Jesus to put him to death. And they bound him, and they led him away, and they delivered him over to Pilate, the governor. Jesus is three for three, just as he said. He's handed over to Pilate, and Pilate, multiple times throughout the story, tries to distance himself from prosecuting Jesus and for a while, you, you actually can read the story, and you can almost think that Pilate is kind of a hero type uh, because he is looking at the Jewish leaders. And he's going, there's not enough here for me to sentence this guy to death. Why don't you guys handle it? Later, he's going to send him over to Herod, and, uh, who's like a, a more of a local official. He's going to send him over to, uh, to King Herod, and he's going to say, Herod, why don't you just deal with this? I don't really want to deal with it. I've heard the story. There's nothing here that is guilty of a capital offense. But for the disciples there in that moment, we don't know if things started to click or not, but now Jesus has been handed over to the Gentiles just like he said he would. The improbable is beginning to unfold. Back in Luke chapter 18, Jesus again now three for three, we see what he predicted next. For he will be delivered over to the Gentiles, and he will be mocked and shamefully treated and spit upon. Now, these three things, I'm going to couple them all up as one. Mock, shamefully treated, and spit upon. Uh, all of these things represent the, uh, the greatest level of dishonor that you could put on a person in that time. And uh, in living in such a high honor culture, uh, this was uh, almost worse than death itself. And so uh, Jesus is making the prediction uh, that he is going to be greatly dishonored when he is handed over to the Gentiles. And the uh, the the Rome the Romans, uh, they would have had no reason at this point to dishonor Jesus. In fact, the context of the story seems to indicate that Pilate hasn't even heard of Jesus. He doesn't know who he is. He doesn't know about his movement. He asks some questions that seem to frame, uh, like, who are you? Are you this guy? Are you that guy? What is going on here? Why are you in front of me? And so when Jesus... Jesus made the prediction that he was going to be mocked and shamefully treated and spit upon. Again, the confusion for the disciples would have been, well, why? You've not done anything dishonorable. But now Jesus has been handed over to the Gentiles. And as we pick up the story, and I'm going to not quite go chronologically in the story. uh, I'm going to go in the way that Jesus laid it out in Luke chapter 18 in his prediction. We see exactly what Jesus said. Says then the soldiers of the governor took Jesus into the governor's headquarters. And they gathered the whole battalion before him. Now, a lot has transpired in this moment. Herod, uh, well, first the the, the Sanhedrin had had their mock trial. Pilate had tried to distance himself. Pilate had then sent Jesus over to Herod, uh, basically saying, Herod, you take care of this. I don't want to deal with this. There's 250,000 people in town. My job is to control the madness. I don't need to worry about some insignificant teacher. That was Pilate's position. But now what has happened is Herod uh, has had his little trial with Jesus, and then uh, and then he's sent back. And it says they stripped him, and they put a scarlet robe on him. Why? Well, because the only thing that they could get to stick uh, on Jesus was that he had claimed to be king. And through the trial uh, and through some manipulation of words and through some leading questioning, what had happened is they had asked Jesus, Are you the king? Uh, and Jesus had responded with, You, you have said that it was so. And sometimes in our language, we think that he was like dodging the question. But what he was actually doing in, in their culture is he was affirming exactly what they had just said. And when you read through this, the irony is so thick because the Jewish leaders of the Sanhedrin, the chief priests, and the high who have been uh, you could you could argue ordained by God through the system that they had to protect the doctrine and the theology of the Jewish faith will actually get Pilate to sentence Jesus by saying to him that by saying to Pilate Jesus has claimed to be king and uh, and Pilate will look back and say. Oh, come on, he's kind of done that. He hasn't really done that. And they'll get angrier and angrier. The Jewish uh, mob and Jewish leaders will say, and they'll say this, Pilate, if you are a friend of Caesar. Now, when we hear that, we think, oh, I have friends and you have friends and you're a friend of Stephen. Or are you a friend? All oh, that kind of stuff. But friend of Caesar was actually more like an official term. And they're saying, if you're a friend of Caesar's, you can't let this stick. What are the religious leaders doing? They're trying to back Pilate into uh, a corner so he has no option but to sentence Jesus. That's what they're doing. And it's amazing, get this. The Jewish leaders talking with Pilate actually say back to Pilate these words, we have no king but Caesar. This is the chief priest whose only job is to preserve belief in the one true God. To, to have all of the Jewish people keep their allegiance to God the Father as King, and they actually commit blasphemy by saying we have only uh, our only King is Caesar. They are so willing. They they hate Jesus so much that they're willing to commit blasphemy and to say back to them we have no King but Caesar. And so now Pilate is is backed into a corner. They're basically now threatening him, like we're gonna appeal over you that you're allowing an enemy of Caesar. And of course, Jesus has already made it clear to Pilate: my kingdom is not of this world, it's not in how you think. And so, what do they do? They put the, the robe on him, the royal robe, which would have been a robe of Herod's, probably. This was Herod mocking Jesus. Oh, you call yourself a king, take my expensive robe. And then twisting together a crown of thorns. And we've all seen the pictures of the crown of thorns, whether it's in artwork or movies. And, and you wear it, and it, you know, it kind of like strikes you like those little pricklies that you get sometimes when you're walking through the forest. But that's probably not what it was. In fact, what the crown of thorns probably was, uh, it would have kind of mirrored Caesar's crown. And Caesar's crown had these big, spikes that were you know made out of gold right but for Jesus of course they wouldn't have been and so they would have put the crown on his head cutting the nerves around his cranial and uh, every one of them one uh, one medical professional describes like a lightning bolt shocking through his body In fact, uh, this has been more described uh, from a medical perspective that like every time and that the only way to the crown, if it is what they think it is, uh, the only way for it not to be like debilitating pain would be for Jesus to stand absolutely still and then any movement would uh, have the crown dig into the nerve, sending a, a type of pain that would just bring you to your knees every single time. And so there's Jesus now and he's got the crown in his head. The robe is on him. And what is going to happen next is this. They, they put on his head and they put a reed in his right hand uh, like a mock scepter. And kneeling before him, they mocked him saying, hail the king of the Jews. And it is amazing, is it not? The things that Matthew works into the story that it says that they kneeled before him and they mocked him, saying, Hail the King of the Jews, when we know that someday all people will bow before Jesus and there will be no more mocking. It's true. But in that moment, they did. And they mocked him. Hail the King of the Jews. And they spit on him and they took the reed and they struck him on the head. Why the head? Because that's where the crown was. And so every time they hit him on the head, the nails uh, or the, uh, the thorns of the crown would dig deeper in, sending through an unimaginable pain. And when they had mocked him, they stripped him of the robe. They put his own clothes on him, which would have just been a loincloth, because uh, most of the time, Rome would crucify people naked. But they had a little arrangement, the Jews did, with Rome, that Jewish people uh, wouldn't be uh, crucified naked. And so Jesus would have had a loincloth on, all right? And then they led him away to crucify him. Jesus is now four for four, just as he said. And I paused here to remind you that one of my opening points was that if Jesus made this grand prediction about everything that was going to happen and it was happening all along, just as he said, that Jesus knew everything he was going to face. All of this. And he didn't run from it. He didn't abandon it. He didn't try to get out of it. He faced it. And at some point friend, you got to ask yourself, why? We'll see. He goes on. He says, and after flogging him, now for the disciples listening on that particular day, flogging? It was well known in Roman society that flogging was the third worst type of punishment, the third worst after only being uh, buried alive and crucified. And so they're here they're thinking, okay, they're, they're going to dishonor you. They're going to flog you. Jesus, I have no idea what you're going to do between now and then that would ever result in that. And flogging uh, was like a, almost like a game for the Roman soldiers, uh, they would practice it, and they would try and get better and better and better at it. There's other stories in the scripture that talk about whipping, uh, but these are not the same things. The Jews would whip. We see that happen to the apostle Paul, and they were allowed to whip according to their law 39 times, but not over 39 times. That's not what was happening with Jesus. He was being scourged, and to be scourged would have two Roman soldiers who practiced this like you practice anything. They would practice this, uh, and one would stand on one side, and one would stand on the other side. And and they would, go, right? And they would whip uh, or flog Christ. And as they would do that, the the the, the spiky metal uh, balls at the end of it would attach into his skin, ripping out uh, skin. Uh, oftentimes, we're actually revealing the organs underneath, and blood beginning to pour down. And what's interesting is as the Roman soldiers, I'll just read it to you in the text, actually. So when Pilate saw that he was gaining nothing, but rather that a riot was beginning, right? And so now uh, Jewish uh, people have become, they, they've begun to notice. And remember, they're waking up on this day. Uh, many people don't know what has happened or transpired uh, during the night. They didn't have social media back then, so nobody could start, hey, Jesus got arrested, right? People are beginning to understand, like, something is going on. And at the same time that this is going on, uh, a couple of miles away, really not that far actually. Uh, what is going on is the the priests are beginning uh, to get ready for the Passover and to prepare for that and people who have arrived into town with their pure spotless lamb are getting ready to bring their lambs to the temple so that their lambs would be slain so that their sins might be covered and that's going on in the same time that this is happening and, uh, and as he's going on here it says but rather a riot was beginning. Pilate took water. He washed his hands before the crowd saying I am innocent of this man's blood. See to it yourselves. And he really wasn't innocent of the blood. He didn't have the moral fortitude to stand up and to do what is right, Uh, but he was trying to wash himself from it as much as possible. And all the people answered these astonishing words. Let me say this. There has never been said something that was more true with a wrong understanding than these words. Let me read them to you. The angry mob yelled out, His blood be on us, And on our children. And what they were saying in that moment is this, uh, uh, Pilate, if you don't want to take responsibility for the the death of this man, we'll take it upon ourselves. And not only will we take it upon ourselves, but the the, the guilt of killing Jesus, that can be passed on to our children for generation after generation after generation. And so they said, let his blood be upon us. And they thought that they were saying, let the guilt of Christ's blood be upon us. But what they didn't understand understand is when they were saying let the blood of Christ be upon us and upon our children that exactly what they were doing was making it possible so that the blood of Christ could be on them and on their children but not the blood of guilt the blood of grace and the blood of freedom and the blood of forgiveness that it would fall on them and their children so he is now sentenced to scourging. Then he released for them Barabbas. that'll be a story for another day. And having scourged Jesus, delivered him to be crucified. Jesus is now five for five in his prediction. The next thing that he says in Luke chapter 18 is this. And after flogging him, they will kill him. And so in Matthew 27... After Jesus walks what probably would have been just half of the cross. Sorry to ruin your picture. The other half would have already been there. Jesus, taking half of the cross, walks it through town. At this point in time, he's a bloody mess. The crown is still digging in to his head. He falls. Simon of Serene is compelled, forced to grab the cross and to carry it. Jesus is then nailed and placed up on the cross. And we read these words. Now from the sixth hour, there is darkness over all the land until the ninth hour, noon to three in our understanding. And at the same time that Jesus is now hanging on the cross, the events of the temple would have begun to be picked up. And so at about the time that Jesus is going to yell out here, which we'll look at in a second, would have been the same time where other people in town, remember, there's 250,000 people. They're, they're not all lined up here. There's still activity going on. Uh, that at the same time uh, that this is happening, uh, what's going on in the temple is, uh, is that the lambs are being brought in and, and the priests would have all been lined up. There would have been 10,000 Levites who were there to serve the 250,000 travelers uh, working through the temple system. And they would have begun at about that time uh, to begin to to slaughter the lamb so uh, that each family could be covered. And so lamb slaughtering is happening, and blood is beginning to fill through the temple uh, while Christ is on the cross. And from the sixth hour, there was darkness over all the land until the ninth hour. And about the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice, saying, Eli, Eli, Lamai, Sabachthanai, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And in this moment, when Jesus yells out, Lamai, Lamai, Sabakhtani, right? Oftentimes, we think, okay, God is forsaking him in this moment. But if I yelled out, I would never yell this out, but if I yelled out, four scores seven years ago! Not any of you would be like, okay, 24, times 27, okay. What was 87 years ago? What is Stephen trying to point out? No, no, you wouldn't have thought that I was telling you to go back 87 years. Hopefully you know the answer to this question. <laughs> you would go, why is it even quoting the Gettysburg Address? And you'd go back and you'd say, well, "Let's go read it and see what it says." And when Jesus yells out on the cross those famous words, what he's saying to those who are watching is this, "Go read Psalm 22." That's what he's saying. He's saying, go read the psalm because at the beginning of the psalm, it writes out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And then the story of the psalm will continue, and it'll move on, and it gets worse and worse and worse, and the person that the psalm is about faces greater and greater trial at some point, uh, exclaiming, I'm like a worm of a man, and as you're reading through the psalm, and uh, there's probably an expert there, somebody who had memorized it, I don't know if the disciples all coupled around and said, does anyone know it? Did you do your memory verse like, do you know Psalm 22? Can you please recite it for me? And as they're working their way through the psalm, thinking, man, this is not good, like it's getting worse. It's not, it's not any better. What is happening? And they would have kept working through the psalm until they would have gotten to a line that said, and the result of this will be the salvation of the nations. As if Jesus was up there saying, the story's not over. You have to go through the whole psalm to get to the conclusion. It's as if he was saying, guys, remember when I pulled you around, when I, when I got you up and I told you what was going to happen. One, two, three, four, five, six. And the sixth thing that would happen is that he would yield his breath because no one can take the breath of our Lord. He yielded his own spirit. But on the cross, he was looking out to them and he was saying, make sure you finish the psalm. And then later, he would say, Forgive them, for they know not what they do. He would yield his spirit, and he would die. And a few days later, on Easter morning, the women would run to the tomb. And they would look, and they would see an angel. And they would say, He's not here. And the angel would respond, He is risen just as he said. He is exactly who he said he was. You cannot deny it. He knew what he was going to face, and he faced it anyway. And if you can trust that, if he can predict that, if he can say the improbable, then you can trust everything else that he said. What happens next is the angel leaves and what happens is the Roman guards, they run back into town and they find the Jewish leaders and they go, um, the body's gone. And it's amazing. The Jewish leader's first instinct when there's a body gone is to say, Let's make up a story. If there was any time in life to reevaluate, that was it. Like if there was any time in life to go, maybe I don't get the whole story. Maybe I haven't properly understood. That was the moment. But instead, they just doubled down. Okay, why don't we do this? We'll pay you a bunch of money and you go tell a different story. And it is that story that has been being told since that moment. Two stories. One story, he is risen just as he said. And the other story, knowing in all of history and all of life and all of eternity. Asking the question, which story do I believe? Because if you can trust him when he said that, you can trust everything he said. And something else he said is this. I am the way, the truth, and the life. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have everlasting life. And when he says the word believe there, it's not like I believe that planes can fly. It's I believe and I get into the plane and I allow it to take me to a new destination. And when Jesus said, whoever believes in me, he wasn't saying all of you who out there who will look and say, I have an intellectual idea that maybe this happened. He is saying all of you who will place your trust in me and be transported into a different life will be saved. Oh, and there's so much more written in the scriptures. And all of it will come true. And all of it has come true just as he said. But before we talk about any of that, some of you have to decide, do you believe in what he said? Not just an intellectual idea, not just the kind of belief that drives a little bit of religious movement every once in a while. The type of belief that changes your very identity. Now you are in Christ. And that's the kind of belief I want to invite you into. Will you pray with me? Father, thank you for giving up your son. Jesus, thank you for knowing what you were going to face. And enduring it anyway. Thank you that it happened just as you said. And right now, we trust in the validity of your word. Because you also said that whoever believes in you will not perish. But have everlasting life. And So if you are out there today. And you have never believed. Believed in the finished work of Jesus Christ on the cross. Now is your moment. If there was any time to reevaluate, now is the day. Faced with all of this, those guards and the priests, they had one day of evidence. We have 2,000 years of it. Will you believe the story, the real one? If you do, what do you do? In the silence of your own heart, there's not magic in these words, but there's something supernatural in faith coming alive. You'd pray something like this. Jesus, I finally see it. The eyes have opened. I believe in the story of the cross. Your life for mine. And I believe in the resurrection. The undeniable proof that I can be made new moving from death to life for all of eternity. Something else that Jesus said is that when that happens, there is rejoicing in heaven. You have been born again. You have been made new in Christ. And as everything changed for the world On that Easter Sunday, everything now changes in yours. Welcome to the family. Welcome to life in Christ. And Father, as we pray those prayers, we also think of all of the other incredible things that you said, Jesus. And we know that if this is true, all of those are true. And so build our hope and our confidence in you. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Thank you so much for joining us today. If you'd like to take a next step with Redemption Church, visit us online at experienceredemption.com slash connect card. You can also give online to support the work of Redemption Church. To explore your giving options, visit experienceredemption.com slash give online. We hope that the message you heard today encouraged you. See you again soon.